Hello, everyone. Welcome to the event today. Uh, the event is Behavioral Science in the Post-COVID World. I am Simon Hicks. I'm the Pro-Director for Research at the LSE. Um, that's a sort of fancy way of saying I'm Vice President of the University here. I'm also a political scientist. I'm not a behavioral scientist, so I'm here to, to learn um, as well as contribute. Uh, let me first introduce the, the speakers. Uh, but while I'm introducing them, please think about questions you might want to ask. You can use the Q&A. Please use the Q&A box rather than the chat function. We're going to be keeping an eye on the Q&A. And after, you ask, after people have asked some questions in the Q&A, you can actually vote on those questions. And as the questions rise to the top of the Q&A list, I will be asking them uh, the questions to the panelists after they've done their introductory remarks. We're also recording the event today. So um, remember that uh, it's going to be a podcast and anything you say in the Q&A, you should only say the kind of things that you would if this was a public event and it was being recorded. So just warn you from our previous experience of these sort of events at the LSE. So let me first introduce our great panel we have today. So we have Nick Chater, who is Professor of Behavioral Science at Warwick Business School. Hi, Nick. Uh, we have Paul Dolan, who's Professor of Behavioral Science at the LSE. We have Grace Lawden, who's an Associate Professor in Behavioral Science, also here at the LSE. We have Tali Sharat, who's Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at, uh, in the Department of Experimental Psychology at UCL. And we have Rory Sutherland, who's Vice Chair of Ogilvy, an international advertising agency and founder of their behavioral science practice. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each of them an introductory question that they're going to answer in less than five minutes, hopefully, so we can get into some interactions. And then I might ask them all if they've got anything they'd like to respond to each other's points they're going to raise. And then we're going to open up to the Q&A. Um, the recording will be available on um, the LSE website as a podcast. Uh, somebody just asked in the chat. So first question is to you, Grace. Which behavioral biases have made things easier for individuals during the pandemic and which have made things worse? Um, thanks, Simon. And, you know, thank you, everyone, for coming on this um, most extraordinary day. We have the, the US election and we're just also about to go into lockdown here in London. Um, for me, I think a lot of the time the biases that make our lives easier for us are also the ones that have the potential to make it worse. And there are lots of different biases. So I'm just going to mention two today to keep under the five minutes that I expect will be familiar um, to most lister listeners. So I'm going to start with optimism bias, which is the tendency to be over optimistic, underestimating greatly the probability of undesirable outcomes and overestimating favorable and pleasing outcomes. And I think it's obvious that I suffer from optimism bias as the person who named this event. It's called behavioral science in a post-COVID world. And I think we're quite far away from a post-COVID world. Um, but I do think that optimism biases allows people to remain optimistic even during these kind of relatively dismal periods like we're going through now. And I think some of this optimism is down to people anticipating the end of the pandemic and what they might be doing. I was meant to go on holidays on Saturday. That's also cancelled. Um, and when what we anticipate doesn't work out, most of us just experience a loss. And this is very painful for our well-being. And, you know, Paul is here today who knows about the determinants of well-being more than I do. Um, and I think he might say that we do adapt. But I think it's going to be really interesting to consider the speed of adaptation during this pandemic um, because I can't think of a time when we've had data and also had so many people who've been going through so many negative shocks and disappointments. So I think optimism bias is kind of keeping us happy for some of the time during the pandemic, but equally it's causing us to be on what's becoming popularly known as the Corona Coaster. 
Um, the second I'd like to think, talk about is um, confirmation bias, which is the tendency to search for and interpret, focus on and remember information in a way that confirms to one's um, preconceptions. Um, so I've always been quite envious about people who are um, very determined in their convictions. Um, and as I've learned more about behavioral science um, through studying it, I've learned that perhaps these people actually suffer from confirmation bias, which is really easy in a world of information overload where it doesn't take me very long to find some information that actually agrees with opinions that I might, might have. Um, I think us as people, we're more content living in a world of certainty. So confirmation bias is really, really helpful when we're going through times of uncertainty. And I think our ego also ensures that as humans, we, we like to be right. So if you've ever tried to change somebody's mind about something, you know, it's really, really difficult. Um, and again, you know, co confirmation bias really kind of keeps us in this kind of happy area where we get to feel that we're right. We just look at information that supports our convictions. But I think at the same time, when assessing choices that have high levels of uncertainty, confirmation bias will allow people to have false certainty on the claims that they make. And this makes the polarizations of views much more likely. And this has obvious negative ramifications for a society, which we might get to talk more about later on. So I'll leave you with those two, Simon, um, optimism bias and confirmation bias, both good and bad. Thank you very much. Being married to an American liberal, I understand confirmation bias and optimism bias until today. <laughs> So I understand exactly where you're going there. Um, Rory, my next question is to you. What do you think have been the biggest successes of behavioural scientists as a, as, as a profession in terms of impacting the policy debate during the COVID-19 response? What have been your guys' biggest successes, do you think? Well, the biggest success for us looked at from a selfish angle is very simply that suddenly every question is a behavioural question. And that isn't just government, that's also business as well. In that... If you look at how businesses and to some extent government forecast behavior in the future, most of it is an extrapolation from past data. So you assume that traffic growth will continue. If you're an airline planning airline routes, you look at the routes which are growing, the routes that are shrinking, the routes that are highly profitable, and you extrapolate forwards. OK, and then the other two sources of, of sort of, I think, judgment tend to be one boring mainstream economics and to market research, okay, asking people. Okay, now, under these circumstances, this really is decision making under uncertainty, because all three of those are unreliable. Um, Gerd Gigerenza recently wrote a piece, oh, God, I'm going to have half the people dropping off now, can't I, because I mentioned, I know you academics, you, you love a little, you know, nice little bit of polarisation. But Gerd said, it's a fatal mistake in a time of extreme change to optimise on the past. And so if you were the board of British Airways or indeed the government, it doesn't really matter. Two years ago, the main discussion would have been, OK, we're going to expand these routes, shrink these other routes. And um, by the way, how do we hedge fuel prices? And now the basic question is, how the hell do we get people back onto planes, if at all? And by the way, I agree with uh, Robert Crandall, who is the former chief executive of American Airlines, that the business traveller ain't coming back. We've got a new equilibrium. And, and so it's all it's been a huge kind of boost for behavioral economics. What was the advice they could give us at the beginning? Wash your hands, keep your distance, all behavioral. Secondly, by the way, I think experts in decision making un, un, under uncertainty have a lot to tell the scientific establishment where I think they're trying to effectively construct models of what's going on based on what they happen to know rather than what they need to know. 
And I'm still alarmed there haven't been any challenge trials that look at really, really important variables like the extent to which the initial dose might contribute to the severity of symptoms. They haven't looked at challenge trials. We don't even know that variolation is impossible with this virus, by the way, because no one's tried. Okay, so I think there is this fantastic question, which is that most business and government under normal circumstances operates under conditions of what I'd call fictive certainty. You just pretend that economics is true. You pretend that a past is a, is a reliable guide to the future. And you pretend for purposes of maintaining your own sanity and, and essentially maintaining your own credibility that market research is a reliable guide to what people will do. And the fact that we've been presented with a case where all three of these are now, now seen to be highly unreliable. And we've also seen behaviours that we wouldn't have predicted uh, we've also discovered completely new patterns of behaviour in terms of remote and flexible working, which I think will end up being a gift for the most part. Um, but that's been, you know, an incredible, I think, elevation for the importance of understanding the deep, real why of human behaviour. The things, you know, the, the motivations and instincts that don't change, because those are the only bedrock on which you can build anything. And it reminds me, finally, of how tiny this community is. I mean, I kind of know all of you. Right. OK, if you look at a field like economics, which has absurd influence anyway, but you look at the number of practitioners and you suddenly compare, you know, the size of this field, which is genuinely tiny. Um, that's alarming because, uh, you know, if nothing else, I mean, you know, even if it causes a decline in quality, an increase in quality, just in quantity of people who think behaviorally first um, is something that we really need going forward. So I think that's a, that's great. So we need more more behavioural scientists and more behavioural scientists. Yeah, oh, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. That, we'd be able to fix fix the, the the problem. So I think that's a great introduction to my next question, which is to Nick. Um, what do you think have been the biggest failures of behavioural scientists as a profession in terms of impacting the policy debate during the COVID nineteen response? Yes. Well, thanks, Simon. I think um, I'm going to pick three things. I think the first one is slightly. Um, slightly marginal case, but it's one that got a lot of media attention, which is the, the notion of behavioural fatigue. And the reason I think this is a marginal case is that I don't think behavioural scientists really ever thought this, and I don't quite know where it came from, but it became labelled as something the behavioural science community had somehow uh, implanted in government's thinking. And I don't think that's correct. And, and one reason that that's a very, that was a dangerous idea is it gives you, well, first it was used as a, as a reason not to go into lockdown early, because people get jolly tired of it. Now, that obviously presupposes that if you go into lockdown early, you'll be in lockdown for longer, which itself is an interesting um, piece of logic, which doesn't necessarily stand up. But in any case, I think the, uh, the, the concept of behavioural fatigue doesn't really have much of a basis. So Nigel Harvey at UCL has written a rather nice article on this recently, which I would recommend to people. But one very simple point is that if you're fatigued, by analogy with physical fatigue, then you'd imagine that um, if you had a rest, then you'd be absolutely ready to go again. Um, but the idea that we could do another three-month lockdown, and if we had a bit of a rest, we could do another three-month lockdown, and we'd be absolutely fine. It's nonsense. Um, it's, it's, clearly, uh, it's, it's clearly not working that way. And the other point, of course, is that uh, actually people establish habits, uh, and those habits actually do become very entrenched. So you could say this toothbrushing, it's just going to cause tremendous behavioral fatigue. You'll never get people to do it for a whole lifetime. But amazingly, they do. In fact, we do all kinds of things over an entire lifetime quite happily. So I think that's one thing, but I'm not sure it really came from the behavioral science community. Um, the other th couple of things, uh, which I think are quite deeply embedded in many behavioral scientists' minds, including mine, 
are connected are connected to each other, uh, and they're essentially the, the, the both coming from the fact that the, when we think about um, uncertainty in behavioural science, we tend to take the economic model <coughs> for good reasons, <coughs> which is to say that we consider the the range of possible outcomes, how prob probable each one is and what utility or cost benefit we'll get from it, and we average over them. And that's a very sensible thing to do from a, from a normative point of view, but from a psychological point of view, it isn't very close to what we actually do. So I think there are there's one... Um, Alex, logodicity, don't forget. It assumes well, there are, there are, yes, many other complicated, complicating factors. But the um, a really simple point is that this kind of cost-benefit analysis doesn't help us much when the world is very uncertain. So, for example, the, the rationale for locking down tends to be qualitative things like the health service will break. It doesn't tend to be a classic ca calculation of costs and benefits. Essentially, it sort of constraints on the normal operation of the system. When they are violated, you just have to take evasive action. And there's no... you. you it's not that the cost-benefit analysis is, is invalid. It's just, it's kind of, it's just no point. We just don't get to do that. It's too hard, and the system, the, the social system, just has to be stable. And I think those, that's just a different way of thinking, which I think politicians naturally think in, uh, and I think every, in everyday life we do too. But it's really not really the, the, the stuff of um, behavioral economics because it's usually a, a modification of these classical economic theories. Um, the other thing, which I think is something that is quite a big failure, certainly, which I feel is uh, applicable to plenty of my own work in the past, which relates to the same thing, is that in reality, and this also picks up on Claire's, uh, one of Claire's points earlier about confirmation bias, in reality, we often only consider the world to be uh, have, having one possible state. So while we sort of know it could be all sorts of different ways, in practice, we tend to think, what's going on with this pandemic, if we say a policymaker, and we think, Early on, we think, well, I, I think it's going to be a storm in a teacup. Won't really come to anything because that's happened before. In that case, don't bother with protective equipment and all that um, preparatory work because that'll just be wasted money. Now, a, a classic sort of um, behavioral economics, or indeed even more so, a classical economic model would say, ah, but there is a small probability that uh, it will, in fact, not be a storm in a teacup. It will be a total disaster, in which case you really, really ought to be spending some money because the the, the um, that will pay back many times because the disaster will be so big and the, the, the taking precautions will be so important but that's not our natural mode of thinking at all i think our natural mode of thinking and again this will be true for policymakers and, and individuals is to think what's going to happen ah it's going to be this therefore i act as if that is true i don't take account of, of other possibilities um, except with great effort um, another example would be having a model in one's mind which I think many um, people did in the scientific community at the beginning uh, of this virus as some, something like, like um, a flu virus or indeed uh, many viruses which can't really be stopped. So if you start off thinking, well, viruses can't really be stopped, oh, this one will be of that type, then there's just no point locking down. And then we go into the kind of flattening the curve that everyone's going to get it eventually, herd immunity, hyper mentality. Um, and I think, again, that is, that is you know, it, it, it's very important to... Uh, consider both that possibility that's the case or the possibility that in fact it can be stopped and it might be optimal but m not many people consider both and that is really odd from a, a, a sort of rational point of view but that is the way our minds work so when, when we're thinking about what policymakers and, and indeed individuals will do I think we have to think about people be being partly polarized by just having very um, fixed models of the world so Phil, Phil Johnson Laird has the um, makes a point somewhere where he says that the fundamental reasoning error, human reasoning error, is to think of only one model of reality. Um, and I think that's that's really been evident in this in this context. And I think behavioral scientists kind of half know this, but they forget it. And certainly in lots of the models I've built, I've totally failed to take account of that. And I'll be trying to do better in future.
Thanks very much. I mean, I'm very prescient. For me as a political scientist, I'm spending a lot of time on Twitter today explaining to people that when we said yesterday that that Biden had a 75% chance of winning, we meant that Trump had a 25% chance of winning. People tend to focus on the majority expectation and say, that's definitely going to happen. No, that's not definitely going to happen. Actually, you've got to think about, we've given you a range of possibilities and behaviorally, we focus on the one that's got the largest probability and assume then that's definitely going to happen. And so absolutely, I think that resonates across a whole range of, of fields in the social sciences and how we understand how people respond to information. So. Next up for Tally, um, I think building exactly on what we've just heard from Rory and Nick there, uh, what lessons do you think behavioral science has given us that we should carry forward to future pandemics or crises? Hi, so um, I think I'm going to touch upon two issues. One is well-being uh, and mental health. So what kind of factors are helping people at this time in terms of well-being? And the second is behavioral compliance. So in terms of uh, well-being and mental health, um, we did um, a large representative um, survey to try to see what factors are the most important in keeping people's well-being during the pandemic. Um, and we found that the number one factor that was most important is having a sense of control. So people who had a sense of, of control and agency over their own lives, uh, they did uh, relatively well. And of course, that's the one factor, I mean, not the one, but many factors have been affected by this, but control has very much been affected by the pandemic because people um, really have much less control than they did before. You can't decide if, you know, when are you going to leave your house? Where are you going to travel? When are you going to see your family? Agency has been restricted and that has a very negative effect on people's well-being. And, and, and the data shows that clearly that that is really, really important. And so in trying to think how we could use that information um, going, uh, you know, towards perhaps this pandemic, right? It's not post-pandemic yet and, and other pandemics, is how do we maintain people's sense of control and agency? Can we give people choices in the current situation? And so that's something that needs uh, people need to think about. For example, in, in some um, schools in many countries, uh, parents are, are given a choice whether they want to have their kids go in person or go online. That's just one example. But it's something that we need to, to try to maintain as much as we can, given the situation. Um, the, numbers, the number two factor that was most important for people's well-being was income. Um, but it had half the effect of control, which I found surprising when they compete for variants. Um, age was important with actually older individuals doing better than um, young adults and middle age individuals. So despite the older individuals being at risk, it is the um, younger adults in their 20s and 30s who suffered the most because their daily life has been most affected. Um, and people who felt that they were at less at risk also did better. But um, I think what, what this means is that we really need to think not only um, at the population level, what we can do, but look at subpopulations um, and specifically at the vulnerable populations. Because what we see, and this actually touches on what uh, Grace was saying, is we do see adaptation. So the data, not only ours, there's great data from uh, Funcourt and um, Steptoe at UCL. They surveyed 70,000 individuals in uh, the UK every week since the first pandemic. And we, I don't have the data for the last um, couple of weeks, so I don't know how this has been affected by the second uh, lockdown that's coming in. 
but um, it has been shown, it's clear adaptation. So happiness has suffered at the beginning, significant decline, but has been going up very steadily, as well as life satisfaction going up, depression and anxiety symptoms going way down since the first lockdown and stress also has been going down. But when you look at that, it's a bird's eye view, right? So it is on the population level, people are adapting um, as you'd expect from the human species, right? We're extremely good at adapting to new environments, new circumstances, extreme adversities. There's so much research on this. But um, when you then look at the subpopulations, that's when you see people who live alone, um, people who already have uh, mental health pre-existing problems. And so um, I think most of the attention has to be focused on those populations going forward. And um, in terms of behavioral compliance, what we have seen in our data, and, and I'm sure this is other people have seen it as well, is that people's perception of the danger of the pandemic has been going down. That is, people perceive the, the, the virus as less dangerous than they did in the beginning. Again, this is, you know, obvious introduction to psychology type of thing, because you get used to, a, if a stimuli is not actually affecting you personally, you get used to it, and then you underestimate the risk even more than you did before. The reason this is especially important is because and this is, I guess, a bit of, of good news for human nature. Um, we have seen that the number one predictor for behavioral compliance is, is helping other people. So it is the risk that you think the virus um, has for the population at large and for others, not for yourself. So when you have these two things compete, you're asking, why are people complying? Are they complying because they think they're at risk? Are they complying because they think other people are at risk? And it is the other people at risk that is driving behavioral compliance the most. To me, that's good news about human nature, somewhat surprising, I have to say. But it means that we're um, trying to, to act in order to protect others. And, and someone had a great comment here um, someone named Alison Frost, and she said that the message in the UK was save the NHS, and that had a great effect on people's behavior. And I think that that is a great example of, of our data. So um, I, I think that suggests that the message, as some of it has been in the UK, is about complying to save others. Thanks, Tali. I mean, it's interesting that perspective on, I think, some of the perspectives here about the messaging of putting save the NHS above save lives actually led to more lives being lost because people focused on the save the NHS and so people didn't go to hospital and people were kicked out of hospital sent in so there's a big debate about the, the kind of signaling of this above saving lives and what the impact of that actually was but perhaps we'll get into that so Paul, yeah no abs absolutely but what I mean is uh, that um, saving others not necessarily not going to hospital when you have a pre-existing British art no it's not inconsistent but, with what you said I think it's absolutely right yeah. once you did I think we didn't predict what the power of that message was going to be. I mean, they deliberately put it on there expecting people to respond to it. But the fact that I think there was such an overwhelming response to it was, I think, underestimated by policymakers mm -hmm. in terms of the consequences. There's so a very interesting uh, little sideline to this, which is the framing of mask wearing, yeah. which is I have to admit to this, that when you saw Japanese tourists on the tube wearing masks, uh, five years ago, I was mildly insulted, okay, because I interpreted it as effectively these stinking guaylo, that's Chinese, you know what I mean? But I want to protect my health from these other weird, you know, Western people, okay? And I, 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 it was only explained, funnily enough, someone who'd 
been in a conference in Japan where the translator was wearing a mask and he asked why and he was told oh she has a cold and she doesn't want to infect other people it had never occurred to me there was a pro-social element to mask wearing before completely blind to that and we didn't do enough by the way to emphasize that I suspect I think that's right Paul more general question to you um what have been the dominant narratives during the COVID-19 response from a sort of behavioral science perspective oh there you go Thank you. Um, thank you, Simon. Yeah, it's been really fascinating listening to everybody else. Can I just protect the NHS qu uh, uh, line? Because um, it is absolutely clear, I think, that, and we've been doing some work on this ourselves, that the number of life years lost from cancer misdiagnoses um, and people getting treatment later will be greater than those lost from the COVID-19 virus. So I think we need, you know, we, we really need, to, I think one of the lessons for all of us is to be alert to the unintended consequences of everything that we do and, and we remind our students of that all the time and sometimes we're very you know kind of guilty of it ourselves um i will just so just on narratives i just it sort of picks up on a lot on what everyone else has said really is that we want we want to make a complex world simpler we want to resolve uncertainty in a way that makes it cohere and stories provide us that coherence we look for narratives we tell stories we like a good story um so um, they're not only powerful in explaining the world for ourselves, they're also very good to enable us to prescribe how the world should be for others. And so in a pandemic or in any other time uh, of our lives, we're looking for coherent social narratives, dominant and powerful stories that will make life easier for us and easier for the kinds of judgments that we might, 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 might make about other people. And, in Happy Ever After, which is actually really essentially a book around stories about how they affect us and uh, may lead us to you know, sort of leading lives that don't make us as happy as we might otherwise. One of the chapters is, 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 is about health. And it's about this narrative that we create and created that we should preserve lives, that we should extend lives at all costs. And the preserve lives narratives is writ large in our response to COVID-19. You see it. You see it in every presentation of every piece of information. In fact, the only information that we've been given since March are the number of people dying from COVID-19, not placed in any context whatsoever. When the death rates started falling, transmission rates then became the salient number. Um, and it's, it's crowded out a conversation about all else that we might value. And when you have a conversation about that, you almost feel like you have to apologize for discussing something else that we might value. We know that we want to preserve lives. That's an important dominant narrative, but it's not the only thing that matters. Um, I think that we've kind of suffered from a collective terror management theory kind of problem. You know, this idea that we, that we have this existential dread and we fear death and we act in ways to mitigate the impact that, that that has on our psychological well-being. And I think we have a collective sense of that that we might have almost been at the point at which we thought that we could cheat death i mean we were not only at a point in in our evolution where we were extending life expectancy beyond anything that our forefathers could possibly have dreamt of but we were now engaging in activities that were going to prolong lives even further by you know the crazy silicon valley people having full body blood transfusions and whatever you know it's a kind of sense in which we could literally cheat death and I think along has come this virus and it's reminded us of our mortality. Um, and, I, and, and that's very uncomfortable. 
Um, and so it's, it's led us into decisions that when you account for social welfare properly measured, I, I would argue, may have, may, have mis, may have led us to, almost certainly has led us to doing things that will cause more harm than good. And um, Kahneman had a paper, um, I think, published with Jonathan Renshaw, I don't know, quite a while ago now. It, it didn't make it into thinking fast and slow, but it's a, it's a piece that he wrote on politics, which is about why hawks win. Um, and it's a piece about behavioural biases that lead you to be a hawk rather than a dove. Um, and basically, they all kind of stack up in kind of leading you to be hawkish rather than dove-like. And I think that what we've seen in the response to the pandemic is a set of behavioural biases that compound the preserved lives narratives. That it's almost because it's a very strong narrative. But it's like, what what is the alternative? What what like let people die or? Um, we should be making balanced trade-offs. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same resonance and power. It's a very strong moral position to take. It's very hard to argue against that in any powerful, powerful way. It's, it's certainly compounded by the fact that um, Wuhan got the virus first and went first and acted in a particular way that set the scene and the tone for everything else that followed elsewhere. Um, I've had a piece, you know, what might have happened if the virus had started in Sweden. Maybe we would have had a different policy set, you know, set of policy responses. Um, it was fueled by fear. I mean, one of the things that clearly terror management has and narratives give us is a mitigation of fear and concerns. So preserved lives is a, is a good way of mitigating those uh, fears. Um, we... Uh, we can also signal, it's a very powerful signal to say that you care about, I mean, who, who actually doesn't care about, you know, lives. So it, and, and it's, and it's made, and I think, I think it's, I think it's compounded by the mainstream media. I've only always ever thought I'd ever hear myself keep, keep saying this mainstream, mainstream media, like pe people have said it uh, in the, in the, in the past. I've, I've often, I've often thought of anybody that says that as someone that I probably wouldn't listen to further, but the mainstream media has presented this narrative and magnified it. I mean, literally daily updates. And we saw, you know, we saw on Monday's BBC News, Fergal Walsh going around the hospital in Liverpool, um, very emotive piece, but not again placed in the context that the ICU beds weren't at that stage full, that ICU beds with, you know, COVID, COVID, COVID patients across the UK are currently at what a 10% or something. It's, you know, we, we need, we need just more of that context. We could argue all day about what we ought to be doing, but we need to be placing whatever we do in a broader context that considers not just the preservation of, of life, but also the kind of lives that people lead. And I just want to conclude um, with one point, just to pick up on the point that Grace made about optimism bias, because one of the things one of the dangers of the optimism bias is that it's we're six months away from a vaccine ever since January. Um, I think literally if you look at any news coverage since then, I don't know. I haven't done that. I'm sure, I'm sure someone can and will. You literally we are we are six months away from a vaccine. And I and I again, I, I'm sounding kind of conspiratorial, but I don't apologize for that. I don't think is that that's that is a deliberate attempt, I think, to to allow us to remain in measures that we would not consider acceptable for six years um, because we're just around the corner. Away from a vaccine, Paul. The other, the other bit of that is we only need a short lockdown now. 
And if we just have this short lockdown now, then we can solve it and we won't need to do another one. Yeah. He said last time, it was what he's saying exactly the same now. I don't understand why they'd be saying the same now that they said back in March. But it's exactly the same narrative. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, the one thing that has changed, I mean, I came out, I said in March, I just, you know, I wanted to say it in March because I didn't want to say it now and then say, I told you so. I think it was disproportionate to shut schools. I think we've seen, you know, close to 100,000 vulnerable children that have gone missing from school. They're missing from school. They haven't gone back. They're in county line gangs. We have no idea where they are. I mean, that's a significantly large number of children whose lives are now, there's not going to be a fairy tale ending for these kids. They're going to, they, their, their lives are, are, you know, harmed for good. And at least thankfully now, at least we've kind of woken up to the impact that shutting schools has. Um, and I do just want to, because that stay at home message is a really, it's a, it's a lovely, warm, fuzzy feeling for those of us that have nice homes. But for people whose home lives are not warm and fuzzy, stay at home is a really frightening message. Um, so I think, Again, we need to be, be very careful, not only about the unintended consequences of what we do and say, but also to ensure that we have a diversity of perspective in the decision-making processes so that we're alert to some of the unintended consequences, but also the heterogeneous effects of any intervention. Anyone want to come back on what, any, what others have said here? Uh, stick your hand up. I can see you all. Anyone burning to... To jump in and say something grace i'd just like to emphasize the last point that paul made um even though i said that i wouldn't agree with anybody so we can move to the audience but i think it's you know it's really unusual to me and it's and this isn't just the british government by the way you know it's across you know major firms major companies that we have a group of leaders who make decisions for people who they don't necessarily affect very often without consulting the people who they might actually affect. And, you know, I'm really glad that we that you know, as Paul has said, that they've woken up to what closing schools meant for children. But that but it, it's really still happening today. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a real advocate for diversity and not from the socially responsible point of view. But I think some of the harms that Paul has have spoken about could have been minimised if the people who would have been affected by the choices that were being made by leaders of organisations or leaders of government actually got those people in the room and had conversations with them. And, you know, some, and sometimes I think confirmation bias, which I spoke about at the start, is what stops leaders doing that, because it's not very nice sometimes to have somebody in such an uncertain place say something to you that you might not necessarily agree with. But getting those views is really important. And I think hopefully, you know, in, in a decade, that will be the one learning from this pandemic, that the leaders that we want are the ones who include different voices and really listen to diversity. Surely one of the major contributions of behavioral science over the last couple of decades in the social sciences has been to say that we shouldn't assume that we can model preferences or behavior homogeneously. There's enormous heterogeneity. There's heterogeneity in preferences, heterogeneity in understanding, heterogeneity in information. And that's a really important behavioral contribution to the debate. And I, I think that should really be part of how we think about, particularly when you're making such radical policy decisions. What are the heterogeneous consequences of these policies? And I may, I, may I just say, sorry, can I just say, can I just say, because I, I hadn't realised how important diversity of age is, right? If you look at decision makers making the decisions, they're all, uh, I'm 52, so plus or minus five years probably captures about 90% of the decision makers around the world, um, precisely at the point at which existential dread is at its greatest. Um, if, you take, if you take younger and older people, Younger people think they're going to live forever. 
and, and, and older people are starting to come to terms with the fact that they won't. We're in the, we're in the sweet spot of fear. Um, and also to speak to Grace's point, so that's about the benefits of lockdown measures. Grace's point also speaks to the costs. I mean, pretty much, I mean, I think all of us are on this screen working from home on the same salaries that we would otherwise draw if we were in work. Um, so the going through a crisis making major policy decisions. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly, exactly. Okay. But, but there, that is a question, Simon, who's in the room? And I think if you look around the room and nobody, if, if all of us are making a decision about lockdown and taking income away from people, we need to add other people to that room. And some of us probably need to get out. There needs to be kind of voices who are going to be affected in there. Rory, Nick, Tyler, you want to come in on any of this stuff? Yeah. Rory? Just to, just to Nick's point about the fact that we're not very good at ambiguity. In other words, the story either has to be A or B. It strikes me that that's probably necessary from an evolutionary standpoint to create coordination. That you need everybody to agree to basically stay and fight or everybody to agree to go and run away, okay, in order to operate as a cohesive group of people. And so it probably, it's rather like, you, you know, you don't get ants who are kind of polymaths to you, you know. And so to solve the coordination problem, we need to have this kind of ambiguity aversion. Um, and it's probably something we can't get rid of. So it's really worth dwelling on, I think. Nick or Tyler, Tyler, you want to come in? Um, yeah, so, so I, I definitely agree. We need to give people a voice, right? That goes back to a sense of choice, a sense of control, which is very important. And another uh, kind of demographics that we haven't talked about is gender. And I think um, we also see in, in our um, data, but there's a difference between females and males. For example, in working at home, especially when schools are closed, and the UK actually has been doing relatively well relative to other countries, and the US Many schools are closed. In many other countries, schools are closed. So it's in the UK, it's a little bit better in, in that respect. But when schools are closed, it is females who end up um, having to, to do most of um, the homeschooling and childcare. And that has a very negative effect on uh, females' careers and well-being. Um, and, and again, I think most of the decision makers, um, the majority are male. Um, on, you know, so it is a 55 year old that are also relatively um, the income is, is, is you know, not and in the poor domain and males. Yeah. And, also, and all, all other types of domestic work that can't go on. If you can't have a cleaner come, if you can't have an elderly care, right. work, um, disproportionately, those roles fall on women. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there are limited, there's limited number of hours in the day. And so there's trade offs that women often are faced with that men aren't. So, Nick. Yes, just to, to tie to two points that we've just been talking about together, I think this question of diversity is absolutely crucial. And one of the reasons it's so important is that that even with the best of intentions, we, groups of people with similar backgrounds and interests will lock on to the same narrative and get stuck. So that's one thing. Um, but, but the other thing is that because we have this enormous drive to find, and, and we do need this common story, as Rory was saying, to actually coordinate our, uh, our behavior, um, then it, the process of dealing with um, discoordination and disagreement is actually very, very unpleasant for us. We don't like it. Um, so I think that Grace was picking this up earlier. So it's very easy for us to um, selectively choose our decision-making partners so that we know they're going to agree with us and we're going to come out with the, the, the perspective we feel is right. And what we ideally need is a broader coalition, a sort of more citizens' assembly-like process, obviously very hard to do in a fast-moving pandemic, but we need a, a richer 
um, decision making process with a much larger number of people involved in it. But we still need to come to a conclusion um, because we have to have one conclusion when it comes to a plan of action. We can't have multiple plans running at once, um, but we can have multiple voices feeding into what we think we should do. And I think that's very difficult politically. Uh, we're not very well set up to do that. And indeed, our brains aren't very well set up to do that. And also, I think, those I think there's also a problem in the One minute and then we'll go to the question. So we're... Um, yeah. Uh, ex experts are very heavily weighted to deliver a single right answer, by the way. Yeah, you know, if you look at this nuclear power debate between big power stations and little ones, the one possibility that's never really considered is we should have both. Everybody takes sides because they assume that the condition of being perceived as an expert is that you know a single right answer. Well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, often experts get blamed and... and Often the ex the expert is saying to the policymaker, "Well, on the one hand, this; on the other hand, that. You've got to make a choice." And the moment it was an American president, I think, said, "Give me a one-handed economist." Um, so, you know, so I think often policymakers are having to make really tough choices, and experts behind the scenes are actually giving them. We're not sure. We don't know. It could be this, or it could be that. You guys have to make the choice. And so, you know, a word of defence for policymakers in challenging times. Um, so we have the first question here from, I'm going to mangle the name, I apologise already, but I think it's uh, Giniella Kupchandani. Um, why, despite significant developments in behavioural science, oops, sorry, why, despite significant developments in behavioural science, uh, are these insights not being used in government, e.g. to help optimise compliance of lockdown rules? So, you know, interestingly, uh, what's your view particularly about whether or not you think behavioural insights are being used around compliance and whether people would comply and what kind of assumptions are there? Who wants to have a go at that one first? Anyone here? Nick, brave man, go for it. I'll, I'll just say a tiny bit. I mean, I think that they have, to a degree, they have been used. Um, the, you know, there's this discussion we were having earlier about the um, others being more important than oneself and the uh, importance of social solidarity, which led to the primacy of the safety NHS message. I think that that probably was coming out of behavioral science discussions or at least compatible with them. And I think that's pretty, pretty influential. Probably may have had some um, unfortunate un unintended consequences in its delivery, but that was, that was a, a direction there. And I know a lot of the government messaging has been trialed. Um, so there's been an awful lot of testing going on with, with using fairly standard experimental methods, which you know, behavioral scientists would, would expect you to use, but are not oft, often not used. Um, in, in these sort of contexts. So I think there's been a lot more message trialling than there would normally be using behavioural science sort of techniques. So I think actually it's a, it's pretty, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of behavioural science input has been uh, been in play, actually. Um, of course, you know, you, we can always look at the, the full panoply of government responses and say, well, this, it was probably almost certainly not optimal in many ways um, and probably not behaviourally optimal either. But then, you know, it's, it, but I, th I don't think it's because behavioural science has been sort of shut out of the discussion. I mean, do, generally, how, what do you guys feel about the fact that often we're overemphasising the importance of policy when actually it's behaviour ultimately that's determining the progression of the disease? I mean, what struck me yeah. from Indeed, the difference between, say, Sweden and the UK has not been that different, actually, in terms of the trajectory of the disease or the trajectory or the economic impact, despite very, very different policies. And it's because, isn't it largely to do with the fact that humans are making a lot of choices themselves, irrespective of what government is doing? So, anyway, it, looks, it looks highly likely if you look at the peak of the death rate 
that in fact the rate of infection had started to tip before lockdown was in fact imposed, simply through voluntary behaviours, by the way. Yeah. It's very easy to suggest that before lockdown, everybody was proceeding as per normal, and then suddenly everybody stayed home. There were quite a lot of elderly people, for example, who are self-isolating, you know, months beforehand and so forth, or certainly several weeks. And I think I think that's interesting. I think it's also interesting about the creation of rules. And the longer I study behavioral science, the more I respect religion, actually, um, which is that um, heuristic rules, which are sort of universal, fair, um, and also which are visible when broken. If you think about the Sabbath, okay, Sabbath breaking is visible. Whereas if you have the French solution, which is a 35 hour working week, you can't really tell who's breaking it because they could just say, I got up late this morning, you know, whatever. Okay. So it's very interesting that I think we can borrow quite a lot from kind of things like Sabbaths and Lent and Ramadan in understanding rules that really work at a collective level. I have a lot of questions on compliance, but Paul next. Yeah, I was going to say that I, what, there's a danger that behavioural science is seen as the science of compliance, the science of hand washing, the science of mask wearing. Um, it's the science. Uh, where are we in the conversations about how to address loneliness at the moment? Where's the behavioural science interventions to deal with another month of people being socially isolated? Where's the behavioural science lesson on how to replace ceremony? Where's the, on, 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 on these important attributes of, of people's daily lives? Where's the, where, where are our interventions around fun? I mean, you know, as, as if like that's a sort of ad, added bolt on luxury good. Um, you know, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that the transmission rates from young boys playing and also girls, but I have a son that plays outdoor football, uh, playing football outdoors are almost entirely zero. His Sunday morning football has been taken away from him, not because of a not not the impact on physical activity. He's he's perfectly, perfectly active. But the ceremony, the the sense of community, the the shared experience of his teammates playing against another team of the dads on the touchline, all of those things that are, they're not additional luxury goods of our lives. They're components and intrinsic parts of the human condition. And what behavioral scientists ought to be doing much more of is not only thinking about hand washing and how to get people to follow the rules. Of course, we should be doing that too, but how we can ameliorate and mitigate some of the impacts that the measures are having on people's lives. And that, that I think is where that I think is a fundamental failure, not of just behavioral science, but of, but of the entire discussion around the policy interventions. Well, I, I, I think there is research on that. There's quite a lot of research on that. The question is, is that research being highlighted? Is it taken into account in making decisions? But in relation to that, what drives me crazy is that you hear politicians again and again saying, science will back our decision. We will make our decisions based on science. But the decisions is not based on science. You can use science to figure out if I do this, this is what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, what you decide to do is based on preferences and ideology, right? First, you decide this is a goal that I want to get to. And that's based on preference and ideology. Then you can use science to get there. But saying things, we will close schools or we will open them based on science, um, to me, doesn't make any sense. Because in different countries get to based on the same science come to different conclusions because one country um, puts more emphasis on education or on mental health and well-being and, and than the other. Um, so I think science can go only, it can give you the tools and the data, but at the end of the day, it won't give you the answers. At the end of the day, people make the choices. Grace, 
But I think it's looking for one answer as well as really problematic for me. And this, you know, when, when Tally presented her research, she did the right thing. She said, this is what it looks like at the population level. But when we drill down to people living on their own and who ha you know, have anxiety and when we think about women, things are different. But the behavioural interventions mostly to get us washing our hands haven't been targeted to individual differences at all, right? So there seems to be kind of this one answer for these popula population health message. And I think sometimes behavioural scientists do over-focus on the average treatment effect and really neglect the fact and we can see it right we can see that young people are really um, um responding very very differently to older people and there's lots of reasons and we could i mean it's pretty obvious why that is but why we're not personalizing the interventions um and personalizing the request to them is really really baffling me um i found it fascinating i'm sure you watched leah varadka at the beginning and what i found fascinating contrasting leah varadka in ireland to boris johnson in london is Leo in his first message at the beginning, tailored parts of his message to different heterogeneous groups. He spoke specifically to older people. He spoke specifically to younger people. He spoke, and I thought that was a very clever way of persuading different groups why it was in their particular interest and their partic to follow lockdown. I thought it was a con hugely contrasting style to a very kind of blanket one-size-fits-all approach we had in the UK. And I think the interesting thing about him as a leader is he is somebody who really embraces diversity and, and, and you know, has people around him who regularly disagree with him, which he sees as a good thing for him a, a, as a leader. Well, and perhaps I might guess that, that you know, Boris is, is less inclined for, to embrace dissent, but I can't, say that, I can't say that for sure. I can say the former, but not the latter. <laughs> We're going to go back to some more questions here. So I have a question from Alex Jenkins uh, for Nick here. Uh, you said that policymakers tend to focus on one state of the world, specifically the one that's currently happening, and that's why there was a lack of preparedness for a pandemic. Yet it's been shown that people tend to overweight small probabilities. Why do you think the policymakers underweight or ignore the possibility of a pandemic when other research might suggest they would they would overweight it? Yes, well, this, this question of under and overweighting is a controversial one. Um, I mean, I think um, the, the, the both things are, are, are compatible, really. So... I mean, on the one hand, I think the main thing is that we only take account of one interpretation of the world. Um, so that's the first thing. But the other is that um, the other question about small probabilities is it might still be within within that one interpretation, that an interpretation which is really very unlikely indeed, still actually gets overweighted in that you know, more people than, uh, as it were, than, than, than would be expected will actually take that up. So if, if I have a tendency to panic, then if you give me a, a poss possibility of some bad thing happening, I personally, and there might be quite a lot of people like me, will panic and think, my goodness, it's definitely going to happen. But that won't be the majority perspective, and that's not the one that's going to be politically dominant. Um, but I think so. So in really, what's going to matter is, as it were, how many how many heads this uh, this this narrative becomes dominant in. Um, and of course, it can, I can I can flip. I can panic at one moment and then think, oh no, it's going to be okay, and I can panic again. But 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 what I what I can't do very well is consider two options at once. So I can't really think. Well, this 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 is a bit worrying, and the chances are about five percent and ninety five percent chance of this other thing. That's just not the way our minds tend to work. So we either think, "Oh my goodness, it's going to be a disaster," or "Oh no, it's going to be okay." Um, and many of us will be stuck in both one of those interpretations for very long periods. Um, I mean, but 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 the but the basic science of this under under overweighting thing is that very much depends on which type of experiment you're doing. So that's a, another complication there. There's there's not really a clear story. It very much depends on you can get you can get either result depending on which, which experiments you do. And of course, there's the distinction, I suppose, between isolated risk and systemic risk, isn't there? Which you have to treat them differently because. 
you know, even things like nuclear power are actually, you know, Chernobyl is localised, whereas the banking sector is essentially so interconnected that one isolated incident can bring down the whole, uh, you know, the whole shebang. And they are fundamentally different, I guess. We're going to move to another question here. We have a question from Elizabeth uh, Thieman. Um, do you have a behavioural science explanation about why countries run by female leaders have done so much better in the pandemic, e.g. New Zealand, Germany, and most Scandinavian countries? Is it better decision-making, more focus on science? After you've had a go, I'll talk a little bit about what the political science research says on this. But anyway, so why don't we go, Grace or Tali, do you want to have a go first? Here, I see you laughing. I, I, I feel this should be answered by one of the, the men in their 50s, to be honest. Here, I think it would be nice to hear their perspective. But Tali, you should go if you have an answer. <laughs> I absolutely don't. And the N is so small yeah. that I, 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 I'm a little bit cautious. Of, of, <laughs> I think that's yeah. the right approach. Actually, there's been quite a lot of research in political science doing kind of cross-sectional time series stuff, putting in a whole range of characteristics, populists, authoritarians, liberal democracies, non-liberal democracies, gender. There's very little they can find. It tends to be state capacity that's the big predictor of lower deaths. Hungary's uh, done okay, for example. And, and I think part of the thing about women leaders is it's endogenous. Well-functioning political systems with high state capacity. But can I just say, but let me just, let me, let me just say, let me just know, let me just say, because this is really fundamentally important again, is, is with the, we're, we're using the Eurovision Song Contest of, you know, death rates. I agree. We, we shut our schools. Sweden didn't shut its schools. It shut its colleges and universities but everyone under 16 stayed in school i mean that, that why, that's that's a that's a really significant metric um or it's, it's at least worthy of discussion <laughs> when I, we when we're plotting all these other um you know um outcomes which are transmission rates and death rates it's you know they, they have to be they have to be considered together and trust and happiness in government as well, I think, Simon, is really important. So, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon, you know, up in Scotland, people really, um, you know, they really trust her as, as a leader. And, you know, their debt rates, if we compare them, you know, to England, aren't, aren't, aren't doing so well. But there is something about her delivery. So I think focusing on whether or not there's lower debt rates when we compare male leadership to female leadership is actually the wrong question. I think we're in a pandemic. There are going to be people, unfortunately, that will die. I think the question is whether or not we're managing the other things, the excess deaths that Paul has already talked about, the well-being the tally has talked about and, and ultimately trust in government because I think the reason why Sweden were able to have the response that they were able to have is because as a country they have much more trust in government than they do in England so when the government gave them the advice they took it so I, I would love to see political scientists model that outcome and talk about the interaction with gender rather than deaths. I think that's right that's a good point. Tali did you want to come in I see you're nodding at some point there. No, yeah, I, I agree with Paul. This is unrelated to gender whatsoever, but I absolutely agree with Paul that we have to have a, a better metric or a more, you know, diverse metric. I mean, uh, it used to be that GDP was everything, right? And when one good thing that, that Britain has done is actually look at uh, sort of happiness measure, well-being measure, and taking that into account to quite an extent, looking at that over time and every year. Um, and, and I agree that something like that has to be done now as well so not we looking only a different focus on gdp to a focus on death right right and and, and all of, i mean all are important right health is important finance is important mental health is important i could be very mischievous at this point and say that tally's measure of housework um is slightly unfair because what i do know from home base and bnq is the patriarchy has been doing a lot of diy <laughs> during lockdown so i just thought i'd stand up for my gender just for a second well, we need to, 
be very careful time, you know, time. Uh, we don't actually have very good time use surveys uh, that are well designed and we need to do them better. And I think we'll get a better sense of this kind of stuff. Um, so let's move on to another question here from Harry Blue. In relation to Rory's comment regarding the need for more behavioral scientists as a new joiner to the community, what would be your advice, training, reading, experience, other than come and study at the LSC or UCL or Warwick? This was a, to, to Rory. Oh, um, well, I'm first going to give some advice to academics, which is you better start investing in a spangled suit and a tour bus, because if academia effectively goes online and becomes networked, you're going to have a massive winner-takes-all effect. It happened when the gramophone came along, okay? Before the gramophone, you could make a reasonable living as the seventh best operatic tenor in Denmark. And then the gramophone came along and everybody wanted Caruso, okay? So the first bit of advice is to academics, which is you better get a TV series fast, okay? Because this is going to turn into winner-takes-all. Um, the second thing is um, a really interesting question. Um, if you're curious, and this is, let's be honest, an incredibly intrinsically interesting field, you know, it's not something you really have to force yourself to study. Um, the first thing I'd say, yeah, I mean, start by reading. And I, I'm a huge devotee of one year courses because I think the, uh, you know, the ratio of time spent and cost to gain is enormous. And I wouldn't discourage people from studying something else at degree level and then doing a one year uh, MPhil in this subject. I think, you know, in terms of this is me as an employer. Uh, okay. I mean, I'm not that. I mean, I get a bit irritated when the BIT insist on PhDs. It strikes me as a bit of a kind of, you know, a bit of a bit of a high bar. I mean, economists would call that a barrier to entry, wouldn't they? Um, and so, you know, those one year courses are really, really valuable. And the other thing is, I think, is just in terms of your mindset. Um, the best thing lesson I learned under lockdown was from Matt Ridley, where he quoted, I can't remember the guy, an eminent biologist who said, biology is the study of, is a science of exceptions. And I think we spent too long, and Grace has, has already remarked on this, trying to solve for the average, you know, and trying to look for kind of Newtonian, you know, rules. And actually, the mentality is that of the naturalist. You potter around looking for anomalies, and that's where you start to learn. So I think once we realise that, you know, I've, I've spent sort of three weeks absolutely fascinated by Gusto. Does anybody know this home delivery recipes uh, business where you get a, four recipes and all the ingredients, you know, delivered? I'll send you a code towards the end, OK? And what fascinates me about it is it's totally illogical, right? Because you could simply get a cookbook, of which I've got 15, choose a recipe, order the food or buy the food, cook the meal. But you don't. You never do. In fact, people have probably made 0.3% of the recipes in their cookbooks. Suddenly, when all the food arrives simultaneously, you make yourself four kind of restaurant quality meals a week. And so I, I, what I love doing is treating consumer capitalism as kind of the Galapagos Islands and just going around going, that's weird. What's going on there? There's some sort of coordination problem, but we don't really know. And so curiosity. Well, sorry, I need to get into some other questions, I think. Sorry, yeah, no, no. I, um, I, yeah. Uh, I think against Emek asks a good question here. How long does it take for individuals to get back to normal levels of well-being from the time when they have uh, are impacted? Would be interesting to know how resilient people are. Who would wants to have a go at that? I see Tyler, you nodding. Do you want to have a go? Yeah, at that? yeah, I can t talk about our data. Um, so we saw it within a month, but we we didn't um, examine people every week. 
So we came back, we started the beginning of the lockdown, we came back within a month, within a month, they were back to baseline happiness on average, which we were quite amazed by. Um, this was in the US. So um, so I don't know, but um, it is pretty fast. We do, you know, if you look at research from other adversities, so for example, widowhood, um, some research suggests two years go back to, to baseline levels of happiness. Divorce um, actually takes a little bit longer, but there's somewhere between two and five years um, and unemployment um, about two years. With the pandemic, as I said, we, we saw it was much shorter um, and not everyone. So some people actually became happier. You have to also think about that, right? So some people are quite happy to, to, to work at home, not to have to go to jobs that they don't like to go to, not to commute. Commute is the, perhaps one of the, the, the things that really is, has a negative effect of our, on our happiness, more time with family and so on. So there are these positive effects that some of the population uh, has, has um, had affected. Anyone else want to come in on that one? Yeah, can I? Um, so I, I sort of, I'll explain, maybe just spend a couple of seconds on the mechanisms of adaptation, right? So, um, and then and then that enables us to think uh, a bit more about which things we might get used to and which things we don't. So there's a suggestion that, I mean, because really everything is about what we pay attention to. I've very many people have said this in very many ways. So when something happens, it's, an, it's, a, it's novel and it draws attention to itself um, and there's a reaction to it. Um, the, the next step in adaptation is the key bit, which is, which is explanation. Can you explain why that stimulus has affected you in that particular way? So for, for example, we see it with pain. People that actually people get used to pain quite quickly and much faster than they would anticipate, but only if they can explain why it hurts. So the explanation is important and then it's the adaptation. Um, and so, and so, most things, as Tali says, actually is true. Most things we get used to relatively quickly and much more quickly than we would anticipate. And that includes good things as well as bad things. That's why the pay rise doesn't, doesn't last as quick. You know, the hit from it doesn't last as long as we think it might. But there are some things that do continue to draw attention to themselves longer term. And mental health problems are one of those. You don't get used to being depressed. So for those people that are experiencing adverse mental health consequences from policy measures in response to COVID, they're going to, they're, they'll be the populations that will get worse over time and not get better. And it's precisely those kinds of populations that don't adapt, that don't have the mechanisms, either psychologically or societally, to adapt, is precisely where the interventions need to be directed. This relates to the next question I've got here, which is from Shen Chang Lu. How could we measure the welfare gain from stricter lockdown, making the population feel safer? So the focus on feel safer is that can that be a, taken into account in sort of welfare models when we're talking about a more general welfare model? How would you think about populations feeling safer? Anyone want to have a go at that one? Just to say it's unclear to me that everyone would feel safer. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree that it is important to think about how safe people feel and you know, and try to measure that. Um, but I wonder whether um, people would not necessarily feel safer because A, um, when you're told there is a lockdown and you have to stay at home, you're wondering, well, why? Probably things are becoming worse, right? So actually it's a signal that tells you things are worse. They're not, and yes, you'll be in lockdown, but it's unclear that you feel safer. And number two, I think someone here mentioned, not everyone's homes are safe. 
Um, so for some people, actually, uh, lockdown means that they are less safe. That doesn't answer the question, but it's just... No, 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 but that's a good one. But, but in general, should we be, you know, we've, we've been thinking about this trade-off between economics and, and deaths. I mean, surely there's a whole range of factors we need to be taking into account when we're evaluating what type of policy we need here, which, which should, be, should be able to take account of safety, well-being, he mental health, physical health, family life. You know, you know is it possible to design some sort of utility that we could think about, that, that policymakers could use. I mean, what's the role of behavioral science in thinking about this? Paul, I know you've you've done some work on this, and, and Nick and perhaps Grace, but, but Paul, how about Nick, you put your hand up. How about you have a go on this? Um, well, I mean, I'm going to say that I don't, I don't think there is going to be a straightforward conversion of this whole the plethora of factors into a single utility i don't think that means that thinking about in costs and benefits is, is is a futile thing to do not at all but but I mean, the it's just generally the case that we just have this enormous variety of different interests and concerns and trying to it's, it's a very under only under a very extreme idealized circumstances we can crush that down uh, into a into a, a sort of a utility function um and i think you know it's it's, it's kind of it's possibly a mistaken approach in some context so I mean, it's not the case. It's not as if we're playing a video game and there's a clear scoring mechanism. We just have to work out how to get the highest score. The thing about public policy, or indeed decisions about how to live your life, is we there is no there's nobody giving out the points. I mean, it's sort of our decision. And if you give us a complex choice, then we don't really know what to do. And sort of part of being an autonomous agent is thinking, well, I I think I'll give this a try. And and, and as a societies, we're as autonomous free societies, we're also in a position of thinking, well, I'll, well, let's should we try this or shall we try that? And the the idea that there's a kind of right answer that we could get to if only we had the right measuring tools, I think is a mistake. So I, I mean, I think it's extremely important to measure all the kinds of things we've been talking about, such as impacts on, 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 on you know, people's perceived safety, people's actual safety, education, all the, all the things which are really important. So it's really important that those are measured and that they can be reflected back to us as a, a set of citizens who are helping to make forward for these decisions and to the government too. But I think it's a, mis it's, it's a misleading way of framing the question to think, to think if we could measure all this stuff properly it would just be calculation that's a sort of jeremy bentham perspective but i think it's just not really a, a viable one we're not utilizing okay. can i can i can i completely disagree um uh, not not i uh, can i sorry i will completely disagree um so the treasury green book actually is the mechanism through which we do that we do have an economic appraisal approach that expresses the costs in monetary terms and seeks to express benefits in a single monetary metric. Now, we appreciate that quantification, that measurement alone even is difficult, let alone quantification. But in the absence of doing that, things fall between the cracks and really fundamentally important dimensions of human welfare fall between the cracks. So, so whilst it may not, any, any single modest metric may not, fully reflect and capture everything of value the mere the mere desire to achieve that forces us to think about those important attributes that fall between the cracks so i think so i think even though that may be something that we don't ultimately use and we're not using it at all in the pandemic in the very least setting out those attributes that would go into that single metric forces us to consider them if we'd even had five things on a checklist to begin with at the start of this pandemic which one of which may have included impact on school children then then we might have had, we may not have been able to express them in a single index but the fact that we think that we would ultimately want to do that gives us 
important motivation for at least considering those dimensions. Mm-hmm. There's a big question for economics as well, which tends to assume that collective happiness is the aggregate of kind of individual utility maximization. And what this has proved in some levels is that artificial collective constraints can be happy on our behavior can actually be happiness boosting. Do, do you see what I mean? That, you know, the equivalent, well, this is, this is a bit like sumptuary laws only around travel and transportation. And actually, I mean, I suppose John Stuart Mill would have said, you know, essentially an awful lot of travel, I think an awful lot of business and professional travel was performative. And I think it was done because everybody else did it. And it was a bit like dressing for dinner in the 19th century, which is you hadn't got any choice because it was an imposed social norm. Okay, and so this is a really interesting experiment in the extent to which sometimes collective constraints may be utility enhancing. Grace. Yeah, I, I think I fall somewhere between Paul and Nick. So, you know, when, when people are talking about happiness and um, adaptation, it is true that when there's unemployment, people do adapt within two years. But then if you go over and you talk to economists who look at the long-term effects of having a parent that experience being unemployed, we see long-term effects for kids 15, 20 years out in relatively credible causal frameworks, you know, from kind of credible researchers. Um, so I think trying to do this and take into account all the time dimensions is just too complicated and there's just too much uncertainty. And I kind of liked what Paul kind of fell onto that there could be, you know, five or something measures that we're tracking. And, you know, school kids does feel to me to be one that's absolutely there. And we're keeping an eye on all of those. So we're not just presented with these are the deaths, so this is the transmission rate, but we have have a collection of things that represent the pandemic but also the spillovers and then researchers who typically measure those can be the ones to provide those measurements and monitor them yeah i don't think my understanding of what nick said is that he wouldn't disagree with that i think is is, Mm. no i agree and so i think it's i I mean i think we're probably we can all agree that but if we had similar graphs to those graphs that just show the deaths and if there were graphs that showed mental health and if there were graphs that showed, you know, the effect on school children's or unemployment or in- household income or, you know, poverty levels, or, you know, if we had a, a range of graphs that could be shown in these sort of press conferences, then I think people would have a more nuanced trade off rather than here's the deaths, here's the deaths, here's the deaths. This is why we're doing it. And then everyone focusing on that. So I, 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 I think. You know, I, we could probably all agree on that one. Anyway, there's another next, uh, probably the last question before we then do a final wrap up um, from Tala Dal Shahi. Um, what about building trust models? Have you seen a decrease in behavioral or mental health based on the ongoing dis or misinformation from governments and some reliable media sources? So, you know, our perceptions of misinformation and unreliable media, does that lead through to, does that have behavioral consequences? in what we've seen and how we understand that? It relates, I guess, to the question of declining trust in government, Grace, that you were talking about. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to uh, filter out fake news from Twitter to build an index at the moment. So all I can say is that it definitely changes behaviour. And I don't know how, at the moment, I don't know how to, I don't know how to resolve it. So it's, it's, it's clearly a problem. And I think it's even more of a problem because people, you know, I mentioned confirmation bias, but we all do this. We seek out media outlets that are to our taste. We read the articles that kind of convey the same views that we have and we feel, we feel good about ourselves. But the resolution is, is maybe something someone else in the panel has something to say about. Anyone else going to say that, Tali? Um, well, I'm just, I'm looking here at the data on confidence in government. Um, again, this is from Fancourt, which has all her data is online. It's really great. Um, and what she shows is that since lockdown, there has been a reduction in confidence in government 
in England, but an increase in Wales and Scotland. Um, just kind of a, a little point on that. Um, what I find interesting is that um, in many countries, there has been, um, I mean, what people believe about the pandemic is very much related to their politics, right? I mean, you see this clearly in, in the US, very clear differentiation based on your political orientation. You either think the pandemic is a, a huge threat and there needs to be a lot of regulation and rules or you don't. But what's interesting is that it's not about left, right. That is in one country, if you know uh, the leader is on the left side and, and they're saying, pandemic is, is dangerous and, and real and we have to go, then the, the people would go along with that view. But there's another country where there's another leader also on the left side and they're saying the opposite, right? So it's, it's quite interesting. And I'm just thinking about like Israel and the US as examples of, of right kind of um, leaders um, who are taking different approaches um, and then the reaction of the population is based on the political orientation, which diverges in these countries. So it's much more about um, group membership and conformity rather than there's an actual relation, uh, inherent relation between a specific political orientation and views about the pandemic. That's great. Um, so I'm going to ask you all for a little wrap up, a couple minutes each in reverse order from where we started. Uh, what do you think you take away from today? What are the key messages you want our audience to take away from this conversation? So I'm going to start with you first, Paul. Oh, okay, good. Um, I, yes, uh, that's a very good question. Have I had everything confirmed that I thought I was right about in the first place have your biases um, been confirmed i think i have i think i think my biases have been have been confirmed i suppose i just want i suppose it's just really a case of of emphasizing um a couple of things i suppose one is one is the uh i suppose the fact because the uncertain because the consequences are so uncertain we need to ensure the processes are as robust as possible i think so you know if you think about a court case we don't actually know whether they did it or not, right? But what we try to do is ensure that the processes by which we reach the decision are fair and robust and that we're more likely to convict guilty people and set innocent ones free because we don't actually know. And it feels like, you know, in kind of similar way, this is where we are in dealing with the inherent uncertainty of the pandemic. Um, and so it requires us to have processes in place that lead to the most likely best outcomes. And that does require diversity. It does require disagreement. It does require difference. Um, I, I'm just inc increasingly troubled by the groupthink that has dominated discussions. I said very early on in March um, about the public health and, clinic and the virus infection control specialists all being around the table and only around the table. This is an economic health and social pandemic. So it requires economic health and social contributions um, and I suppose finally in conclusion then it's the social that feels like it's being completely disregarded we have a we have a false dichotomy between you know lives and livelihoods um, and in the middle sits the social fabric of our society and our lives um, and I don't think it's I'm not overstating the challenge by saying that when we undermine when we when we take that away from people it's it, it's a real challenge to think about how we put that back back in again afterwards. And I think that there, somewhere in there, 
somewhere in the response to the pandemic, there ought to be rare, really serious voice given to the social impacts and um, the impacts that have the, the, the pandemic and its response have had on our everyday experiences. But it's interesting that actually in the second lockdown, there seems to be much more sensitivity to these issues than there was with the first lockdown. When it comes to schooling, for example, or the social bubbles that have now been developed or these sorts of things. So, so And the input, for example, from anthropologists into some of the, dis the discussions now. Um, so it's, I think we are learning, but I think you're right, we haven't got there yet. So Tali, uh, what, what do you take? I think for me, the takeaway is that behavioral science is not only about behavioral compliance. Um, to me, this was obvious, but I think it was a good point from Paul because I don't think it's obvious to the rest of the world. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people here, I want to say in the room, but in the Zoom, uh, uh, do amazing work on things like curiosity and joy and purpose. Um, so we all do this work. Um, and I think this is very, very important and relevant work to thinking about uh, response to pandemic. Thank you very much. Nick, I've got you next. So this isn't really a summary of the discussion, but something I wanted to, to just pick up on uh, is that I think when we think about what policymakers actually do, this is also a very interesting behavioural question, so the behavioural science of actual policymakers making decisions. And obviously, often that's done in complex organisational settings and, um, and under great time pressure. And we don't really have a rich behavioural study of that. Um, but I think a lot of the time, it's much more like steering desperately along, trying to stay on the road rather than having a map and a careful, a careful plan the way you want to get to. And so, for example, I think the, you know, the trigger to lockdown, probably both in both lockdowns, has primarily been help. If we don't do this, the NHS in some fundamental way will crash. It's not really a complex sort of a trade-off between one thing and another. It's just a kind of help. We've got to steer back on the road, otherwise disaster. Um, and I think trying to understand, I mean, it would be very useful for us, I think, as a, as a field to be working a bit harder to understand the real constraints that, and sort of information vacuum um, that, that is operative for, for real policymakers. Because you know, it's easy to sort of stand back and think about ideal processes and all the information ought to be available. But the more one knows about what actually happens when complex decisions are made in real time, the more it's really very different from that it's more about sort of disaster avoidance yep thanks very much rory uh, i'll just give you a very optimistic frame which i don't think gets talked about enough that one way to look at this is it's a very valuable rehearsal for a pandemic that's far worse okay so this one has unlike spanish flu which seemed disproportionately to hit people in their kind of 20s and 30s this one has had very little effect on the very young and mostly uh, the bad effects are on people far older. Um, the optimistic way to look at this is something like this is going to happen again, and it could be a lot worse. And within living memory, most people within living memory have no real um, concept of the risk of infectious disease. So you know, had the Titanic arrived at its destination, it would have sat at a quarantine station for people to board. Um, the first and second class passengers would have been checked this is routine in, in 1912, okay? And the third-class passengers would have been shunted off to Ellis Island, which was an island because it was a quarantine station, right? So, you know, was, you know, within, you know, within the living memory of very, very old people, okay, that was pretty routine. And we've completely forgotten uh, the importance of infectious disease. And the real way to look at this is it's a really good wake-up call. Really great. And last but by far, no, no means least, Grace. 
Thank you, Simon. I mean, one thing that didn't come up today was um, the future of work. So before the pandemic, I spent a lot of time thinking about the fourth industrial revolution and how it would actually shape the type of work that's available to us. And I think, you know, what's happened with the pandemic is that a lot of the trends that we were thinking that might happen have been accelerated. And I expect that when it's over, the ones that people like will remain and the ones that won't will, will be gone. But I think one of the predictions that we had even before the pandemic was that without, you know, really good policy thought, that the losers will be the people at the bottom of the income distribution. So they'll end up earning less. And if they are working, they'll end up in much more um, unsecured jobs. And, 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 I, and I really think that's a conversation that kind of needs to run along um, with, the, you know, any responses coming to the pandemic. And also it's not just governments, it's organisations that have duties to workers that are sometimes the hidden workforce they don't get to be in the room when people are making decisions about whether or not they come to work or whether or not they get the tube um, i think specific to the discussion that we had for me individual differences is really really important so we move away from the average treatment effect as behavioral scientists towards thinking about individual differences and also embracing dissent a bit more in conversations so that we can actually learn from each other and not being afraid to have an argument in order that some of us will actually um will, will, will change your mind and I think that's when you do want to have you know different voices around the table and I think one thing that I'll say about Paul is that I'm lucky that he does actually you know embrace dissent and I think everyone else on the call probably does as well I just haven't worked directly with you so I think if we can kind of move towards that for the 400 something people that were on this call today that would be wonderful. Thank you all very much well so as an outsider coming to this I feel very privileged to be part of this conversation what I take away from this actually is that I think behavioral science is in a very good place. Uh, I, I actually see, and I've learned behavioral science, I see as a very integrative social science these days, you know, and going back to the question that was to Rory about what kind of skills do you need to be a good uh, behavioral scientist? I think you need both the kind of quantitative knowledge or understanding how to, how to design experiments, how to gather data, how to measure things, as well as a very careful and nuanced understanding about how humans behave, how society works, and so on. So it's not the kind of thing you get in straight economics. It's not the kind of thing you get in straight sociology. It's an interesting combination or complex combination of a whole range of skills across the social sciences. So, so I really appreciate the perspective that you all have as a sort of really heterogeneous social scientist and pluralist social scientists in the way you think about all these questions. I think that's a great takeaway, and I would really urge the audience to think about uh, behavioral science in that in that vein. Um, what I forgot to say at the beginning of uh, the debate is this is part of a, a series we have, a series of public events and, and other type of events we're organizing at LSE called Shaping the Post-COVID World. When we originally thought about this, we were hoping the post-COVID world was going to be within six months, as Paul said. We were, that was our uh, optimism bias, I think Grace would have called it. Um, but actually we think that the, the, the unfortunately the, the, the actual COVID world is gonna last longer but still, I think we need to think about how to shape that post-COVID world, to think about how we make the new normal after COVID better than the old normal before COVID. I think it's an opportunity just to think about what it means for our economies, our societies, our education systems, and so on. I think it's, an, as a political scientist, also about how our politics and our democracies work. And I think we need to be starting that conversation and starting that analysis now. And, and I really appreciate all of you here who've been part of that conversation. So... Um, it remains for me then to say thank you to the speakers and thank you very much to all the participants and uh, on the call and for your excellent questions.